Thank you for Lysia. We thank you that she is a woman of your word and your spirit. And we pray right now that your anointing, the empowerment of the Holy Spirit would just rest heavily upon her. And that as she talks of you, Jesus, that we would see something that reminds us of your beauty and draws us closer to you and the life that you call us to live. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you very much. Um, I'm just going to pray as well. I know we just prayed, but it helps me. <laughs> Father, I thank you for the beauty of your son. Lord, I thank you for Jesus and the fact that we get to know him. Not just about him, but know him. And Lord, I pray that this would be more than a fun series title. Lord, that you would write truth upon our hearts. Father, would you glorify your son in our midst today? Would you put him on display as beautiful and glorious and awe-inspiring that we would gaze upon him and respond with the worship that you are so worthy of? Holy Spirit, I pray that you would come. You who searches the deep things of God, would you come and reveal them to us? I pray that you would help me to say only that which you want me to. That you'd give us ears to hear beyond my words. That you yourself would speak to us and change us from the inside out. Jesus, we love you. And we desire that you would truly be our greatest treasure, our highest ambition. We exalt you. Amen. Okay, so um, we are carrying on our Knowing Jesus series today. Um, and we are, as this says, I'm going to look at the meekness of Jesus. Um, I love this series and... The reason I love this series is because it kind of sums up the purpose of life. <laughs> and we've got a good title there, In Knowing Jesus. And when I kind of come to, if I'm, I'm doing a message in a series, um, one of my starting points for preparing is, is normally to ask myself, why are we doing this series? And this one was really, really easy to answer that to. Um, and I think it is the most important thing we could be talking about because it is kind of sums up the most important thing in life, really. I want to read from Philippians 3. Um, I'm going to read from verse 3. I think I've only got the last couple of verses on the screen, but bear with me. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Now this is a verse that we 
hear and quote um, quite often within the church, but I had to start with it because to me, this sums up the reason we're doing this series. Because here, Paul is basically gushing about Jesus. He's saying, if you want a reason to boast in yourself, like I've got a lot of reasons. I'm well-educated, I've got good lineage, and lists all these things. And yet he says, but I consider them all to be rubbish because I get Jesus. Now, the real thing that we get, just like Paul, when we become a Christian, when we give our lives to the Lord, is not a better future or more favor. It's him, (laughs) He's it. He is the reward of the gospel. He is the treasure above all treasures. He is our greatest ambition and our highest pursuit. And we think that we know that, and I thought that I knew that, and um, I think that one of the things that causes us to stumble in this is that so often when we give our lives to God, we've just heard a story of how he has broken in and lifted someone from their terrible situation. He's broken in and brought deliverance. He's broken in and brought freedom. He's broken in and turned someone's life around for good. And then the altar call goes out. Who wants to invite Jesus into their lives? And we're sat there broken and in pain. And we want someone who can make it better. And so our hand shoots up, of of course, (laughs) I need that. I want someone to come and fix this because this is messy. And does he do that? Does he transform lives? Does he rescue? Does he deliver? Does he save? Absolutely, a thousand times. Praise God for his transforming power and his mercy. But what we've actually done in our response there, subconsciously, is we have invited Jesus in as this add-on, as a fixer. And... Paul says in Philippians something very, very different. He says, actually, when I gave my life to Jesus, the best thing I got was him in all of his glory and beauty and everything else, be it good or bad, is rubbish in comparison because he is what I gained. And I think sometimes, I I know for, for me, whether we truly believe that shows when things get a bit, rough and not great and good wonderful people around us ask us questions like how how are you doing with God in all of this and I've been asked that question recently not had a great couple of months and I've had some really good people say where where are you at with God in all of this and my response told me a lot to be honest because my response was (laughs) truth be told And really what that tells me is that subconsciously, I would never have admitted it, but subconsciously, deep within, that actually I I had surrendered to Jesus, but on my terms. That when I'd become a Christian, it was because I had this subconscious belief that that meant that everything was going to be okay, that everything was going to turn out great, that everything was going to be fine and get better from this point on, when actually we get Jesus. He is, he is it, and he is enough. He restores, he heals, he comforts, he saves, and he delivers. But the gospel is not about my life being better. It's about a Jewish man from Nazareth named Jesus. I want to read 2 Corinthians 5.15. This verse, this one kind of phrase, 
is mind-shattering if we let it be. Paul's about to tell us the reason that Jesus died. He's about to sum it up in a sentence, and it says this. And he died for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. That's kind of insane, because what Paul is actually saying there is, why did Christ die so that we who live may no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died for us and rose again? So in other words... He is highlighting again, the crux of the gospel is not my life being better. It's actually the very opposite. Actually, at the very heart of the gospel is the fact that my life is not meant to be about me at all anymore. He died to liberate me from me, to free Alicia from Alicia so that Alicia can live entirely in him. The reason he died is so that my whole purpose of existence can now be found in him. So therefore... Knowing him is everything. If actually the crux of the gospel is a man named Jesus, and whatever happens in life, it's about him and his glory and his beauty, then actually my knowledge of him is the most important thing in life. So this series is of utmost importance. If we spent forever on this series, we would be doing a valid thing. Because the knowledge of Jesus is the most important thing to any Christian. And so, I want to look at his meekness. And I kind of will talk about the end, at the end, kind of link back to why I think studying and being students of the meekness of Jesus keep us in that place of wanting to know him more. But first, what does meekness actually mean? And I just a disclaimer here. I, if this happens to be Lyndon's preach, I haven't heard Lyndon's preach when he preached on gentleness. I've heard it was really good, but the word is the same or similar. So if I am repeating things, I apologize. Um, but let's look at the word meekness. The Greek word used for meek, or sometimes it's translated as gentle, is, I'm really bad at this. I think it's praus. Madame, would you say that? <laughs> praus, praus, something like that. And simply put, this means power under control. Now, one thing as I was studying that I found really interesting is that um, some people suggest that this was originally a military word used for war horses. So this is a really cool picture. So they would go out and capture these wild horses. Um, I love horses. They're like my favorite animal. So like, I'm going to get excited about this. You guys don't have to. Um, so they go out you know, into the mountains and they catch these beautiful, powerful, mane-flowing creatures and start to try and train them. Now, the ones who are too unruly and wild, they just let that go again and kind of give up on. There are some who kind of become... I guess you'd call them like cargo horses. They were just used for carrying goods from one place to another back in the day. And then, if a horse was extremely powerful and maintained its spirit, but allowed that to be harnessed and bridled, that horse would become a war horse. They were called, and that, that word, prows, um, was used to describe them. So these horses were trained to obey instantly and absolutely, no matter how brutal the battle. The war horses were tremendously powerful, and yet their power was under complete control. And while they may have been gentle to the riders, they were fierce in battle. Now, I think meekness gets a bad reputation when we think of the word meekness. We think of 
kind of timidity. Is it that or is it timidness? Whatever one of those timid. We think of shyness. We think of a layback personality or maybe even weakness. But this word, when we look at meekness, when we talk about Jesus being meek, it is the opposite of weakness. Because weakness is the absence of power. Weakness means you're out of options. You don't have power or strength to draw on. You are weak. Whereas meekness is to have full power at your disposal and to restrain it for the sake of a higher cause. We can't confuse weakness and meekness. Meekness is possessing power, but refraining from using it for personal gain. Now, as we talk about meekness, I mainly want to focus on the cross today, and we will get there. Um, But Jesus' entire life was marked with beautiful meekness because of who he is and was and forevermore will be. And so when we kind of look at his life, and I'm going to I'm going to try and do a whistle-stop tour of most of the life of Jesus in about 10 minutes, so we'll see how that goes. Um, But when we look at his life, we remember that this is God who we're talking about, and yet when we see the way he acts and the way he lives, we see meekness personified because it is unrivaled power with unrivaled restraint for the sake of unrivaled love. There is no one like him. So... Where do we see his meekness? We see it in his identity as a man. Um, Fancy word for Jesus stepping into creation, his incarnation. So God, the one who took on, the one who created all things, the one who spoke life into existence, the one who was there before time began, almighty creator, he took on human form. I've put here the one who upholds all things by the word of his power became a baby who could not utter a single word. The host of heaven left the throne room to announce his arrival, singing glory to God in the highest, as he lay there as a baby who could not even hold the weight of his own head. He was not forced to become a man. It was his willingness to humble himself. We see his meekness in his identity as a servant of all. Mark 10:45 says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give up his life as a ransom for many. See, Meekness has a bit of a bad reputation here in our day because we're actually used to it being exploited. Jesus, the most powerful man, came to meek and and to broken, weak humans and didn't exploit but served meekness, power and restraint. We see it in his self-description. Matthew chapter 11 Verses 28 to 30. I love this verse. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And when you look at that word gentle, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, it's that word prouds. <laughs> so, this is, the, this is actually, when you look at in the Gospels, this is the only time that Jesus describes himself using adjectives. He, he talks lots of, um, he reveals lots of his names. He calls himself the Son of Man, Son of God. Um, but this is the only time in Scripture that he uses adjectives to describe himself. And these are the ones he picks. Gentle and lowly in heart. That says a lot about our Jesus. That out of everything... He wants us to know he's meek. 
is powerful, but he's never going to use that to exploit us, to serve us. And if we understand that and come to him in his meekness, we find rest for our souls. We see it as he suffered temptation and sympathizes with our weakness. Hebrews 4 says, We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. What kind of God, all-powerful, would be tempted so that he can sympathize with the weakness of his creation? We see it in his compassion. We see over and over again Jesus reaching out in compassion. Matthew 9, uh, verse 36 says, But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them, because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. Over and over again, we see him heal, using his strength and power to serve. Um, One story that's been touching my heart over and over again since a conversation I had with my mum a couple of weeks ago is um, the story of the woman with the issue of blood. And there are so many stories that we could use to illustrate um, Jesus' meekness in the way that he heals, the way that he has compassion and um, brings healing to people. But this story has kind of opened up in a whole new way to me um, recently. So thanks to my mum for that. Um, So I'm going to just kind of paraphrase. So some of you will know the story. Um, Basically, Jesus is on his way somewhere and he's a very big deal. He's Jesus. So there are crowds following him and kind of the hustle and bustle is around him. And there's a woman in the crowd and she has had what is described as the issue of blood for over 12 years. So constant bleeding for 12 years, basically. And she pushes her way through the uh, the crowd and touches the hem of his garment and is healed immediately. And Jesus, bear in mind he is being like surrounded on every side. He's got people bumping into him. Jesus stops and said, who touched me? And the disciples say what I would have said. Are you serious? The better question would be, who has not touched you? Look around. And Jesus says, no, someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me, basically. And everyone at this point is listening to Jesus. Everyone's eyes are on him. Everyone like has stopped because Jesus has stopped and said, who touched me? He's making kind of a big deal out of it. And so the woman realizes that She has to respond now because everyone's waiting for someone to go, that was me, sorry. And so she comes and it says she's trembling. She comes trembling before him and she says, I touched you. And Jesus says, daughter, your faith has made you well. And I have never thought of before, you guys might have, so apologies, but I'm going on a whole journey with this, so I'm going to take you all with me on it. I have never thought of before why Jesus would care so much to do that publicly. It could kind of seem like he wanted to humiliate her because she's got what she needed. She could have just gone on her way. But it's so much better than that. So actually, if this woman had been bleeding for 12 years constantly, that will have meant that, according to Jewish law or tradition, she was ceremonially unclean. And that means that she was, will have been in complete social and religious isolation for 12 years. She was untouchable. 
She was the one who, if, if you touched her, you were deemed unclean. And so actually, Jesus, the most powerful man, is walking down a street. A lady touches just the hem of his garment. And in that moment, he uses all power that is available to him to not just heal her physically, but to restore her dignity. Because publicly, what he was doing is saying, you have been set free from your suffering, and in the attention, with the attention of everyone, that means that you now have community that you've never had before. Because none of the people around me have any excuse anymore to call you unclean and to isolate you because you are healed and you are free. So when Jesus says, daughter, your faith has made you well, some translations say whole, and I love that. Because it's much more than, daughter, your faith means that the bleeding stopped. It's, daughter, you are wholly restored, including your dignity, including your community, including physically. Go and be set free. There is no one like Jesus. What kind of king does this? Such power, such kindness. We see it in his glad submission to the will of his father. Jesus lived a life of full surrender to the will of his father. We see it at his baptism. John the Baptist, quite rightly so, sees Jesus approaching and says, uh, uh, no, you should be baptizing me. But Jesus, in his meekness, says, no, this is right. He gladly submits to the demands of righteousness at the time. We see in the timing of his ministry. It blows my mind that Jesus waited 30 years before he began his public ministry. That's 30 years of living in the reproach as an illegitimate child. Because he was born into scandal. That's 30 years as a carpenter. Can you imagine? I mean, I don't know how it all played out in his human frame. But can you imagine at 15 knowing that you have the power to move mountains, literally, and yet, embracing the life of a carpenter. Scripture suggests that um, Joseph had probably died, and so he needed to provide for his family. So for 30 years, he restrains his power, and he serves that family. And then, when he does start his ministry, I love this story too, it is in obedience to his mum. So he's at the wedding in Cana, we know, lots of us know the story. Um, they've run out of wine, which is like big humiliation. It's not good. And Mary comes to Jesus and says, you've got to fix this. Now, my question is, Jesus hasn't begun his, begun his public ministry yet. So what had Mary seen at home <laughs> that meant she even knew that he was capable of doing this thing? So she comes to Jesus and she says, you've got to sort this out. And Jesus says, woman, it is not yet my time. And um, now if Jesus is saying that, he's not lying. He's Jesus. He's never done anything wrong. And he's in perfect submission to, the, to his father. So if he's saying it's not yet my time, probably wasn't really yet his time. But Mary <laughs> ignores that. I love mums so much. <laughs> ignores all of that, turns to the servants and says, do as he says. <laughs> in other words, boy, I'll tell you when your time is. <laughs> and it's now. And Jesus submits to his mum and launches his public ministry. Now, is there a lot of symbolism in that? Starts with the wedding, ends with the wedding. Yes, it's beautiful. I'm sure God had a plan. But he wasn't lying when he said it's not 
It's not my time. He's Jesus. But his mum told him it was. And so Jesus, the king of kings, obeys his mum. We see it in his messianic secret. Now that is just a phrase that is used by scholars to sum up the fact that he constantly told those he healed or set free to not make him known, which seems bizarre. That's not how you market. (laughs) That's not how you do marketing. He continually avoided drawing attention for himself. Why? Because he wasn't campaigning to get human praise or approval or political advantage. He could help more people if he wasn't known for a while. What kind of God uses his power, heals someone, like literally can't walk, now they can walk, and then goes, just keep that to yourself. (laughs) Enjoy your freedom, but don't attach my name to it. He's meek. We see it in his prayer life. I love this one. I wish I could. I'm not going to talk for a long time. It's one thing for Jesus to come as God in the flesh. It's another thing for him to execute his ministry through a place of prayer. To live as a man by the power of the Spirit through prayer. It's astounding meekness. We see it in his kindness in relationships. The way he deals with the rowdy disciples with such kindness over and over again. We see it in his joy in the disciples' partnership in the work of the kingdom. Luke 10 I love Luke 10. So the 70 are sent out. It says they're going to be sent out as a lamb among wolves, which is kind of intense. And they return, and Luke sums up what I can only imagine was this amazing like party scene with this one sentence. The 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Now, can you imagine? That's got to be the understatement of the year. 70 people have gone out, have been sent out by Jesus himself, and they have witnessed demons fleeing at the name of Jesus. They have witnessed people being healed. They've witnessed people being raised from the dead, and they return with joy. (laughs) I'm sure there was a lot of joy. And it goes on in that passage to say, in that hour, Jesus rejoiced in his spirit. I love that. Jesus has sent these guys out, and they return with joy. I can only imagine the conversation. Like One of them's like, oh my gosh, you never believe it. I saw someone that couldn't hear, and now they can hear, and then they're trying to one-up one another. Well, I saw someone raised from the dead. Sorry. It's like they're having this like banter, and Jesus' heart is burning with delight because his power was used to uh, equip people and send them out and to see people getting to partner with him in the place of ministry He rejoices in his spirit. That's meekness. We see it in his treatment of sinners over and over again. The way he speaks to and treats the woman at the well. The way he handles um, his relationship with people that society has disregarded. Um, Matt spoke on that excellently a, a few weeks ago. And then we get to the cross. And I just want to say we cannot know Jesus without knowing the cross. So we see him at the Last Supper, and even there, he's fully knowing what he's about to go through. His heart is for his friends. He's preparing those he loves for his departure, like a loving king, preparing them for when the shepherd is struck and the sheep are scattered. We see his great high priestly prayer. So John 17, he's about to go to the cross, and you peer into some of his last moments on earth, and what do you find? You find him praying for us. Father, I desire that those that you've given me would be with me where I am, that they would behold my glory. Meekness. He could have done anything using his power to pray for you and I. 
in some of the most painful moments he will have ever gone through. Then in Luke's gospel, we're giving this scene that takes place. So Luke 22. And while he was still speaking, behold a multitude. And he who was called Judas, one of the twelve, went before them and drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? When those around him saw that this was going to happen, they said to him, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus answered and said, Permit even this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Okay, not only did Jesus use his power to heal the very one who he was then going to let overcome him, but he asked if he can do it first. When it says permit even this, when you look at that word permit, it's allow. Will you allow me to do this? Who is like our king? In John 18, I've talked about this before. I just love it. We see soldiers come that are coming to arrest him falling down at his feet when he just says, I am he. The very declaration from Jesus' lips of who he is causes men who have come to arrest him to fall down in terror. The restraints that he shows. He's then taken before um, Caiaphas. I, I can never say that. He's brought before the Sanhedrin. He keeps silent in the face of mocking accusation. I'm like skipping loads of things I know, but I just want us to get the overview of his life of meekness. And then we see in Matthew 26, the high priest arose and said to him, do you answer nothing? What is it these men testify against you? But Jesus kept silent and the high priest answered and said to him, I put you under the oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the son of God. Jesus said to him, is that you it is as you said. Nevertheless, I say to you, hereafter you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. He's silent in the face of accusation. With one thought, he could have had 12 legions of angels released to free him from the situation, but he's silent. He's not lying when he says, you'll see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power, coming in the clouds of heaven. He's declaring truth. I've got lots of scriptures in here, but for the sake of time, he then goes to Herod. Herod's actually glad to see Jesus because he's been wanting to get on, in on the miracle action. He questions him. Jesus says nothing. They accused him. They hit him. He's sent back to Pilate. They scourge him. That one phrase, scourge, sums up the most horrific thing you could ever imagine. They twist a crown of thorns. They put it on his head. They strike him. And then you see this. This, to me, sums up Jesus. This is him before Pilate. So he's been sent from Pilate to Herod because Pilate doesn't want to deal with it. Herod sends him back to Pilate, and we see this exchange. Pilate said to him, are you not speaking to me? Do you not know that I have power to crucify you and power to release you? And Jesus answered, you could have no power at all against me unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. There would be no, <laughs> Jesus is saying, you think that these nails that are about to go into my hands are for your doing. You couldn't touch me if I wasn't allowing it. And despite trying to release him, Pilate washes his hands of Jesus and hands him over to be crucified. And we see this grueling death um, take place. We see that he can't even carry his own cross. 
guy called Simon of Cyrene has brought him to help him. Just think about that for a moment. In his humanity, he can't take it any longer. Isaiah 52 talks about Jesus being marred beyond human recognition. He could not carry the cross. He's shattered, not in the way that we use it. He is shattered. He's broken. My sin, my weakness, it shattered him. At every turn, Jesus intentionally volunteered for the next step. At every step, his will said yes to another nail. I wrote lots more about the words that he says from the cross and the way that we see that meekness, that power to use to serve over and over again. But I want to kind of end with this. This was no ordinary death. This was the opposite of weakness. It was unrivaled power, restrained and unrivaled love. I've written a bit here that I just want to read. The transcendence of his greatness is mixed with submission to the Father. His uncompromising justice is tempered with mercy. His majesty is sweetened by meekness. In his equality with God, he has deep reverence for God. He has sovereign dominion over the world, yet came in obedience. He baffled the scribes with his wisdom, yet was approachable to children. He could still the storm with a word, and yet did not remove himself from the cross. Perfect power was under perfect control because it was harnessed by a perfect love so that you and I could live with him forever in the grace of God. When we look at the cross and when we look at the life of Jesus, it has to be through the lens of weakness because otherwise we just make him weak. Without realizing who he is, it just looks like a man who lost. And we know that he didn't. That's not the end of the story. Next week I'm going to talk about the majestic returning king who will have the victory and has got the victory. But I just want to bring it full circle now. I started by saying, us knowing Jesus and be consumed, being consumed by him is the most important thing that we can ever achieve and do in our lives. And the reason that I wanted to focus in on meekness is because this is what wins our heart. This is what causes us to make him our supreme delight our treasure above all other treasures. It's his tenderness. His power causes us to tremble, but it's his tenderness. A heart that is gripped in tenderness is in the tightest grip possible because a heart's defenseless against mercy. What do you do when you look at the cross? You can't tell a man who is hanging on a cross when he could not be because of all his power that he does not love you and want you. In the cross, we see the greatness of love and give way to all its implications. It's a place where humanity was eternally affirmed in the heart of God before the eyes of all. We don't ever have to guess what God feels about us. We just have to look. We just have to remember the day that meekness prevailed. His love touches us so deeply we want him and him alone. And upon reception of such kindness, the heart has no more defenses. When you look at those closest to Jesus who witness all of this, that then go on to pen New Testament books. They all say the same thing. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. James, a bondservant of God and apostle of Jesus Christ. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ. Why? Because their hearts have been undone by meekness, by mercy, by looking at the God who could have used his power for anything and chose to serve them in it. And they have no other response than bondservant. I could go into it, but it basically means 
I am yours forever. You own me. I have no rights. I'll do whatever you want me to do. And I'm going to choose to stay that way because I love you. So if we want to know Jesus, if we want to be consumed by who he is, we have to be consumed by his mercy and tenderness and meekness towards us, by his kindness. It didn't have to be that way. I just want to pray. And Emma's going to come up. Lord, I thank you for the cross. Thank you for mercy undeserved, kindness unreserved, by unrivaled love. Lord, I just, the next five, ten minutes, however long, I just pray that you would come and help me to know and love Jesus a little bit more. Lord, I'm not there yet to say I'm a bondservant of Jesus, but I want to be. To willingly give all for your plan. Jesus, that you would be it. The goal, the ambition, my greatest treasure, my highest pursuit. That I wouldn't treat you as an add-on to fix my life, but you yourself would be enough. Challenge me, God. As I look on the cross, challenge me. I want to know you. Just as we close with some worship. I don't really have a response other than spend some time gazing on Jesus. And let his meekness, his compassion, his tenderness win and woo your heart. We love you, Jesus.